Okay, so we're in a series uh, looking at um, Nehemiah. We, our sermon title is, you know, for this series is Restoring 24, and it's a journey basically through the book of Nehemiah, and it's important that uh, Tamsin come and give that testimony because I want to touch on that today. So far, we've actually read, you know, how God called Nehemiah and his people, you know, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, to reestablish the dwelling place of God, and also to restore a city. Now, if you think about it, this is a wonderful, you know, visual illustration of the task of the church today. You know, we are called to rebuild and to repair, you know, you know, the church, the city, you know, in the name of Jesus so that Jesus can be honored and glorified once again, you know, in our society. And as we journey through this book, we've been asking ourselves, how can we apply what we've learned you know, from Nehemiah to our own lives today to make a difference. And last week, we looked at chapter 3 and chapter 4. And in chapter 3, we actually learned that the people on the project, none of them or very few of them were expert builders, you know, but everyone, regardless of the profession that they had, I mean, there was perfumers that were building the wall as well. They were needed to actually do their part. Every single one of you sitting here today is vital to the calling, the mission, and the vision of this church and the extension of the kingdom of God. You are vital to that process. Now, in chapter 4, we learned that whilst working together to achieve a common goal, sometimes you might face difficulties coming from an external source. We discovered how to defeat discouragement when facing opposition and criticism from out with. And then when you go into chapter 5, well, today, it shouldn't surprise us that in a book on leadership and working with people that the subject of money actually comes up. Now, most projects that are undertaken for God involve money in some way, do you know? And it can be an area in which God's people can either shine or they can actually fail. Now, I know four churches just now that are actually experiencing phenomenal revival, uh, they're massively impacting their, their city and, you know, and even beyond that. And what they're all saying to me, the leaders of that, is that often revival tarries because uh, people's bad stewardship of their finances and given to God, you know, and given to God's projects. And it's interesting to me that in the book of Nehemiah, much attention is given to opposition, and that was opposition as well. I mean, chapter 4, when we looked at it, you find it's opposition out with. Chapter 5, which we'll briefly touch on today, is about opposition within. And chapter 6 is, again, opposition from both of those. And when you're doing something for God, the enemy comes against you, you know, from outside, you know, coming towards you that way. And if he can't get, you know, you that way, what he'll do is he'll quickly change and switch his strategy to try and get Christians to fight in amongst themselves. This week, I want to make reference to chapter 5, but I, I want to summarize it. I want to spend most of our time in chapter 6. See, it's not unusual, you know, for a group to have to deal with problems outside the walls and then turn right around and they find that they've got problems inside, you know, their church. In fact, problems, you know, and the right way to do it, Jesus warns us about it. So does Paul, you know, about internal division. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about it. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 32, Paul talks about it. Now, in Nehemiah 5, 
you find him facing a problem which arose within the congregation of rebuilders, the people who were actually rebuilding. Now, there was various causes that were contributing to that problem. Firstly, there was a drought and a famine in the land. We find that in verse 3. And then there was these heavy taxes that were placed upon the builders. You find that in verse 4. And there was also high interest rates you know, being charged by those who would loan money to the builders. And you find that in verses 5 and 6. But the problem that we find here within this congregation is the wealthy were profiteering from their fellow workers. And what that was producing was hunger and a lack of adequate food for the people. People were having to mortgage off their fields, you know, for short-term cash loans to pay the taxes and buy grain to feed their families. There was a loss of fields because of the inability to repay what was borrowed, so, so they, they just lost that. And then some of the folks had to sell their sons and daughters into indentured service or outright slavery for the sake of basically survival. And as a result of this, we find in verse 1, do you know, now there was a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Tension within this group who were doing this joint project together. Now, the two questions that Nehemiah operates through is, what is biblical and what's right? The scenario is, Nehemiah is in a very precarious position here. Someone was right and someone was wrong. Someone is going to have to be confronted and rebuked. Someone is going to have to ask for forgiveness, and there very well could be a price to pay regardless of how Nehemiah responded to this situation. Have you ever been in a similar situation where you knew that it was very likely that whichever way it went, someone was going to be offended or someone's going to be upset? Nehemiah, remember, is not a politician. Not a politician who asks, well, I'll just do what's popular. He wasn't a diplomat who would probably ask, well, what's safe here? He was a true leader. He says, what's right and what's biblical? Just like Tamsin did. What's right, what's biblical? This needs addressed. And at the end of verse 10 and into verse 11 is Nehemiah's plea to the rich Jewish people to please stop charging this horrendous interest to your poor brothers. Lend them some money and lend it without interest. Give them food without making profit off them. Restore the land that you actually took away from them when they couldn't pay their taxes. And alongside this intense opposition, do you know, from the outside, Nehemiah is now faced with these internal pressures, with the people crying out against one another from the inside. The Israelites had basically became bogged down in a financial quicksand here. So, facing the burden of high taxes, with a famine underway, they mortgaged their houses and their land. The interest rates were so high that their children were eventually forced into this servitude to their own people as well. I mean, disgusting when you think about it. Nehemiah, what he does is he sharply rebukes these practices, and he also sets a clear example of leadership by calling on the wealthy to follow his lead. He says, fear God and freely lend to the needy. Freely lend money so that they can go and buy corn. And the reason that he could actually challenge them to a high standard was because he practiced what he preached. And because he was willing to actually confront issues, not run away from them, what you find is the problem is actually solved. Now, I would say that today in today's culture, leaders sometimes can be far too polite. The most effective leaders are willing to have those tough conversations like Tamsin did. There are basically two ways to handle problems like this. You can avoid it, hope that it goes away, it never does, or you can actually confront it. So, difficult situations are actually part 
of every single one of your lives. You will go through them. Employers and employees don't get along. Partners clash over money. Spouses cannot resolve maybe disagreements in their relationships. Absalons rise up in churches that cause loyalties to be divided. And if you ignore these situations, they always get worse. Employees get fired. Partners and marriages break up. You know, churches experience splits and everybody ends up miserable. It's why Jesus gives us a way to address these things in Matthew chapter 18. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and show them their fault just between the two of you. If that doesn't work, then there's other steps to address it. But each one, you must remember, is designed to bring reconciliation and end the dispute at that point. Where people mess up is when they try to short-circuit the process by telling everybody else or get people to go with them, you know, when they haven't done step one for themselves. So, why is this important? Well, it's important because when we're going forward, and this church is going forward, we cannot afford to give the enemy room to build camps, to foster gossip, and cause division, and allow Absalom spirits to rise up within the church. We don't have time to read the full chapter, but Nehemiah does what is right and what's biblical, and what you find is the problems resolved. But opposition continues, and it continues into chapter 6 in the form of distraction. So let me say this. If the enemy can't destroy you, what he'll try to do is distract you. He will do whatever he can to take your eyes off the mission, off your calling, off your purpose, you know, and distract you from what God's will is for your life. He will do whatever he can. I said that, and you know, in fact, let me say this. What you find in the story, and we've already seen that Tobiah, you know, and Sambalat have already opposed them out with, and that's exactly what happens in chapter 6 again. The wall starts to go up, the enemies, Sambalat, Tobiah, and this new guy called Geshem show up, and again, they try and distract Nehemiah from his purpose, from his goal. I said to you that 2024 was a year of restore and a year of open doors. But to walk through the open doors before us, we need to shut some of the doors that are actually beside us. And a good one to start with is to shut the door of distractions in your life. Nehemiah chapter 1 to 2 is where we will see the enemy's plan to actually divert Nehemiah from God's mission. So, verse 1 says this, Sambalat, Tobiah, Gershom the Arab, and the rest of our enemies found out that I had finished rebuilding the wall, and that no gaps remained, though we had not yet set up the doors and the gates. So what did Sambalat and Gershom do here? So Sambalat and Gershom send a message asking me to meet them at one of the villages in the plain of Ono. Think about this. Nehemiah, stop building, stop building, you know, come on. Stop building the wall. Stop, you know, doing the work of God. You know, we don't actually like you and we're trying to stop you. So, hey, here's a good idea. Why don't you meet us in one of the villages, you know, in the plain of Ono? Let me give you tip number one, and I want you to write this down. Whenever, whatever you do, whatever you do, never meet up your enemies in a place called Ono. <laughs> because when you get there, you'll be the one going, oh no, oh no. Do you know, what we might call or think is an opportunity, God might actually say, hey guys, this is a distraction. What's interesting to me when you look at this, and perhaps, you know, some of you will have experienced this in your context, you might think, oh, 
that guy was against me, you know, but this might be an opportunity to meet and convert my critics, or this might be an opportunity to go and expand my influence, or this might be an opportunity just to reach more people. See, oftentimes what we think could be an opportunity, God actually calls it a distraction. Often, do you know, it's actually a distraction from where the enemy is trying to just, you know, he may even offer you something really good to divert us so he can. And Nehemiah's enemies here are clearly trying to do that, to actually take him out. I would argue that there's never been a moment in time where it's easier to distract people. Really, as there's so many things competing for our attention, so many distractions everywhere you look. I mean, when you think about it, Going to get that, please? Isn't it? We're here, we're there, it's going everywhere. There's distractions bombarding us every single day. Have you noticed how easy it is in today's age to waste time on things that actually really don't matter? Do you know, it's never been easier, you know, becoming passionate about, you know, wasting your time. See, if the devil can't destroy you, he will really get excited when he can distract you. So, what do we see in this story? Well, the enemies ask Nehemiah for a meeting. Nehemiah rejects this. Why? So they can stay on task and keep building the wall. And he has this absolute, resolute, no approach to it. But I realized they were plotting to harm me, so I replied by sending this message to them. I'm engaged in a great work, so I can't come. Why should I stop working to come and meet with you? Do you know, four times they sent the same message, and each time I gave the same reply. I would submit to you that one of the most strategic skills that you can develop in order to do what God has actually called you to do is the ability to say no to other things that might distract you from what God has called you to do. As pastors, Linda and I, we're facing two changes, you know, or two challenges in our ministry life that we're having to navigate just through just now. One of them I'll talk to you all about next week, so I'd encourage you, please all be here. It'll be a crucial uh, meeting for, for our church you know, and in order to focus, you know, the tasks ahead of us, we're having to say no to lots of distractions, you know, distractions that are to the left and to the right of me. Do you know, I'm actually growing through my nose, not through my nose, through my nose, <laughs> do you know, more than I am through my yeses. I don't want to get distracted by things that will take me out of God's perfect will. Now, in the past, I've had to say no to my Sambalats, to my Tobias, to my Geshams, you know, stop asking us to step out the boat, Jamie. No. You know, but if you just keep things the way they are, we'll, we'll enjoy comfort and convenience. No. You know, if you step away, you know, from pastoring Glasgow Vineyard and you take this other job, you'll be better off financially. No. Why not stop pushing into the Holy Spirit and being led by Him? It's far safer to acknowledge Him rather than following Him. I walk in great big no to that one. What was it for you? Could it be that, you know, do you need to buy that? No. Are you going to miss out on what God's doing, you know, this Sunday by having a long lie-in? I hope that's no. Are you going to stop at being an attender and not become a member? I hope it's no. And this is another thing, guys. Don't say maybe when you mean no. <laughs> Don't say maybe when you mean no. My default language when God speaks to me is yes. My default language when temptation, distraction, cultural conformity, and the devil speaks to me is absolutely no. And no is a complete sentence when you think about it, isn't it? Complete sentence. I don't have to add because 
when I'm obeying the Holy Spirit. Even Jesus said no at times. There'd be crowds falling and we'd be healing people, etc., etc. But there's also be times when he'd say no, do you know, to the crowd so he could say yes to the Father, do you know, and he needed to spend time with the Father. Let me talk to those of you who are leaders in this room just now. The reason no is an important thing is that you cannot be available to everyone all the time. That includes those, you know, who lead in the workplace, you know, uh, or you're a boss or, you know, you work under a boss. I've had to say no to my employer when I was an engineer and then he threatened to sack me. You know, I was doing all sorts of overtime for them in this specific engine, you know, project. I was doing more overtime than anyone else. And then there was a crunch time and he said, no, you've got to do this Sunday. I hadn't been at church for about four or five weeks. And I said no, and then he threatened to sack me. And I said, well, I need to be with God and I need to be with God's people, so just sack me. You know, if you're going to do this, and we'll, we'll fight that out over the unions afterwards. Sometimes it takes you up to the brink of your livelihood. Do you know, if you always are available to everyone, eventually you'll be, have nothing to give to anyone. So, well, we must be strategic about our no's. We don't say no because we don't care, so please hear that. We say no because we really do care about what God has called us to actually do. So, just because you could doesn't necessarily mean you should. We read four different times that Nehemiah's enemies ask for a meeting with him. Will you meet with us? Will you meet with us? Will you meet with us? It goes on, and Nehemiah gives them the exact same answer. No, he's resolute in it. Do you know one of the things in those churches from uh, I was le learning about who are in revival, they are so focused. They don't get pulled to the left. They don't get pulled to the right. They're so focused. And because they're focused and they say no to things, they're seeing the breakthroughs. They're seeing crime rates go down. They're seeing you know, healings, deliverances, all sorts actually happening. The fifth time, Sambalat's servant came with an open letter in his hand. And this is what it said, there's a rumor. There's a rumor. <laughs> Side note, do you know what rumors do? Rumors lead to gossip. Gossip is clearly identified as sin in the Bible. Said it's poisonous. James chapter 3, Romans chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 5, Proverbs several times, all warn us about the destructive and sinful nature of rumors or gossip. There's a rumor among the surrounding nations, and Geshem tells me it's true that you and the Jews are planning to rebel, and that's why you're building the wall according to his reports. You plan to be their king. There's a rumor. Don't let the whispers of people distract you from the call of God. Don't let it pull you away from that. Guys, you will never do big things if you're distracted by people who are small-minded and want to kind of undermine you that way. We must not allow the opinions of others to take us away from the calling that God actually has for us. And if you're facing criticism just now, this might be helpful to you. I would encourage you to write this down. Don't worry about what people say about you. Rather, worry about what's true about you. Just live a life that honors God. Our passion is to represent Jesus to the whole world. And as followers and as a pastor, I will not stop that pursuit, nor will I stop beating this drum to see who else might be willing to actually pay the price, do you know, for where we are heading, want to see our nation, want to see in our city bring life again, you know, through the gospel. And what I say, guys, is not infallible, so please hear that. It's just the best that I have to offer, but I also say it without an apology. Don't let critics or objectors knock you off your course, and don't let them take you out from being part of God's mission for your life. 
There's a rumor. He also reports that you have appointed prophets in Jerusalem to claim about you. Look, there's a king in Judah. I replied, there is no truth in any part of your story. You're making up this whole thing. Now, you might think that this opposition would actually discourage Nehemiah. I mean, the size of the task, the taunting, the criticisms, the problems within and now threatening dangerous situation, you know, out with. Instead of letting this opposition discourage Nehemiah, God simply made them more determined. God is with us. He is with us. Why don't you turn to your neighbor and say, God is with you. Say it with some enthusiasm. <laughs> he is. Watch how it is described in the next verse. They were just trying to intimidate us, imagining that they could discourage us and stop the work. So I continued to work with either greater determination. Now, if you read carefully, it's interesting the way they worked. They were building this wall, and they would work with a tool in one hand like a trowel and a sword, a weapon in the other. So they were, because of this threat and attack. That's the way I want to lead. That's the way I want to lead. I've got the guidance of the Holy Spirit who gives me practical knowledge in what to do next in the one hand, and then I've got the sword of the Spirit, the Bible, you know, that I live by, that I live my life by, and keeps me, you know, walking in His ways in the other hand. This is what prepares us to do the work of God. And whenever discouragement comes to pull us off track, it doesn't discourage us. It builds our faith, you know, because our God is actually with us, and we will resolve to do the work, and even with more determination. Amen? Amen. 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 We have an opportunity of building something significant on our watch in our lifetime. You need a plan for that. You need equipment for that. You need people for that. The material, the equipment, the plan, and even the wall was actually just to serve this greater purpose that God actually had in mind. But the greater purpose would only come to fruition if the people worked together and were willing to serve and adapt and sacrifice. What I know about every single one of you, I know something about every single one of you. That's scary, isn't it? It's scary. Is you guys were created for more. You were created for more. That God has given you gifts to make a difference in this church and as the church out in this world. I'm grateful that we have lots of folks here building and doing that with us. We want not only to create an environment for that to flourish, but we want to continue to, you know, develop it where it becomes a contagious culture, a culture where people naturally want to pick up the trowel and the sword and help build and extend God's kingdom. John prophesied last week, and if we've got your name and address, I'm going to send you a copy of that prophecy, you know, a recording of it, that there'd be new ministries coming to this church, you know, that God would bring new people that already had existing ministries, and we need to make space and room for that, and we will make room and space for that. But how do we know if those people just aren't craving their own platform, that their hearts aren't right to that? Well, it's simple. We weigh and test it. We put out, you know, we've got a system within that. If your heart is right, we want to embrace you, you know, to, to help us to build what we're doing that. And in order to do that, we need to do things. Two things need to be in place. There's the practical things that need actually doing as well as exercising your gifts. See, Nehemiah, the majority of the folks building the wall, they weren't stonemasons, they weren't carpenters, they weren't even architects, but they were willing to do the practical things before them. They weren't 
Do you know, the practical things that weren't even in their trades, there was goldsmiths and, you know, uh, perfumers, you know, knew nothing about kind of putting stones or wall and cementing it together, but they were willing to work at what was in front of them. So, for instance, if we are to grow healthy, we need to prefer one another. We need to prefer one another. We need to function as a team. We need to be willing to do what is needed and what is before us, as well as exercising the gift that God has given us. Now, that all has to do with having a servant's heart. Linda and I and the staff and leaders in this church, we all model servant leadership. There's nothing that I will ask you to do that I'm not prepared to do myself, and I often do. I'll pick up and unload the trailer. I will unpack that, and I'll help the set-out team. I'll put out the chairs. I'll be in the prayer meeting, and then I'll come to the door and welcome people. I will preach. I will then minister, and if needed, I'll help sit down, and then I'll take the trailer back to storage. And that was only last Sunday. That's what I did last Sunday. And I'm not in a row, so I'll do it every week. You know, people don't turn up willingly, if need be, to serve you and to serve Him. And by the way, I don't get paid for that. So please hear that if you think, no, well, you get paid for that. I don't. I work six days a week for the church. I only get paid for five, and I get one day off for my Sabbath. So that's, that's the deal I've got. I say that only to say this. I'm always looking at the heart, and I won't ask you to do something that I'm not prepared to or, or, or already doing myself, because that's what Jesus modeled when He looked for His disciples. Paul did, Philip did, Stephen did, do you know, Peter did, all had servants' hearts. So, someone may have a phenomenal skill or ministry, but if they don't have a servant's heart, well, you probably aren't going to be able to build with us and so that we can use your skill. You might be a world-renowned preacher and teacher, and if you were to join this church, you know, I would first want to see, you know, are you willing to be part of the relational life and part of our church community? Do you have a servant's heart? Will you be willing to put out the chairs or, you know, do the visuals or maybe even teach the kids to start with? If not, why not? But if you do, we will know that we then have another trusted, servant-hearted leader who's here to help build, you know, what God is clearly doing amongst us, and we'll be able to use your ministry and use your skill to actually further that. The second thing that we cannot afford, you know, to, to miss out on is that we're only interested in the ministry in which we're serving because they're all interconnected. One affects the other. So, if the setup team don't arrive in time, setup is pushed back, which affects the kids' ministry, the chairs being put out, the band equipment being put out. If the band don't turn up in time, it affects the sound team. Do you know it affects when we start worship? If meters and greeters don't turn up, then there's no one to say hello to newcomers and make them feel, you know, hospitable. In fact, people make up their minds within the first two minutes of walking into a church whether they're going to stay or not. If the cafe team turns up, there's no donuts, no refreshments. It'd probably be a rebellion. So, there would be… Uh, Woe to you, cafe team. <laughs> Set up, cafe, band, sound, visuals, meters, greeters, kids' ministry, preaching, ministry time, set up, set down are all interconnected. You know, one affects the other because we don't have our own building. We are constrained to strict time limits where we can be in this building. That's why team and involvement is so important here. See, as God begins to use you, and you start to see your life change, your family life change, you know, your friends, your work colleagues, your neighbors. You have to be careful that you don't let the external success do internal damage to your heart. If we can get this right here, where God's taken us, you'll see the benefit of it and the fruit of it. And what is really easy 
is when we start seeing increase, we start seeing breakthroughs and success, for us to start thinking, it's because of us, huh? it's because of us. And that we are actually entitled to just a wee bit more, a few more perks, you know, more authority, more fame, you know, for that. I've got to guard my heart to that all the time. One of the biggest problems of any type of success, and Nehemiah wasn't immune from this, is the temptation to start leading with an entitled spirit. And I want you to see how Nehemiah dealt with that temptation to be distracted with an entitled spirit. In fact, it says this in the Scripture, later I went, you know, to visit Shem, a son of Delilah, grandson of, big word, who was confined to his home. He said, let us meet together inside the temple of God and bolt the door shut. Your enemies are coming to kill you tonight. In other words, Nehemiah, I'm your friend. I've got some intel on this, you know, they're coming to get you. Let's go to the temple of God where we can hide. Don't know about the others, but hey, we'll be okay. But if he did that, he would have been getting personal gain. And it wouldn't have been for the glory of God. He would have been abusing his power, his position. He would have been sinning against God. And look what he does. But I replied, but I replied, should someone in my position run from danger? Should someone in my position enter the temple to save his life? Here's his no word again. No, I won't do it. I realized that God had not spoken to him, but he had uttered this prophecy against me because Tobias and Balak had hired him. They were hoping to intimidate me and make me sin. Then they would be able to accuse and discredit me. He said no to an entitlement part. We have run out of time on this. So we're going to go into ministry time, but let me say this. Anytime the enemy tries to distract you, you've got to say no to the lesser things because he was saying yes to God. They produced that wall within 52 days, something that 140 years they tried to do and couldn't do. They'd done it in 52 days because they were teamed, they were focused, and they were willing to do what was in front of them. And then later on when the wall was up, they brought their skill set to actually do that. This study in Nehemiah, has been about what God has been speaking to Linda and I since last January. And since then, we've been praying, we've been planning. And so next week, I want to call a special Sunday meeting uh, for us. I won't be preaching next Sunday, but it will be a family talk. And what I want to do is lay out a plan for us for the future. So please make next Sunday a priority, and I hope I've kept you all in suspense. <laughs> <laughs> So why don't we stand and could I have the guys who are going to help me with ministry come out just now?